Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Joseph Karens. We'll be talking about his new book, The Ethics of Immigration, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. Joseph Karens is professor of political science at the University of Toronto. It is commonly assumed that states have a right to broad discretionary control over immigration and that they may decide almost in any way they choose who may stay within the territory and who must leave. But even supposing that there is such a right, we may ask the decidedly moral questions about how this right may be exercised. And this query calls us to try to bring our views about the ethics of immigration into equilibrium with our other moral convictions about citizenship, liberty, autonomy, and equality. In The Ethics of Immigration, Joseph Karens argues that our common commitment to democratic principles calls for revisions to much of our thinking about immigration beginning with the uncontroversial practice of granting citizenship immediately to those born within a country's territory, Karens argues that the claims to social membership and thus to citizenship strengthen as individuals stay within a state. Consequently, there is a point at which not extending citizenship to those living within a state's borders is grossly immoral even for those who have settled without the state's permission. Now, Karen's arguments about the exercise of the state's rights to exclude eventuate in an argument in favor of open borders. The ethics of immigration is a rigorous and comprehensive treatment of a full range of moral and political questions. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Joseph Karen's. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? Great. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Well, folks, today my uh, guest on New Books in Philosophy is Joe Karens. Uh, his new book, uh, just published with Oxford University Press, is titled The Ethics of Immigration. Uh, I recommend this book highly. Uh, it provides a, a comprehensive, I should say, examination of the moral and political issues that arise out of uh, the phenomena, several as they are, of immigration. Um, it's thorough and philosophically rigorous a book, but um, I should add it's accessible and really engaging, uh, even for those of us who, like me, uh, haven't thought a lot uh, or worked a lot on uh, these particular issues. Um, the inquiry uh, is guided by the following question. Um, given our common commitment to broadly what we might call democratic principles, um, concerning things like individual rights and liberties and citizenship. Um, what should we say is morally required 
uh, of our governments or of states uh, in dealing with immigrants. Um, uh, do states have a right to exclude? And if they do have a right to exclude, is it um, uh, broadly discretionary? Uh, or are there um, significant moral constraints on how that right may be exercised? Um, uh, in uh, in this book, um, uh, Joe uh, examines this kind of question uh, from all kinds of angles, considering all kinds of ways in which somebody uh, might acquire the status of immigrant. Uh, and uh, the philosophical stuff here is is really top notch. So there's a lot to talk about. But um, before we get started, uh, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks, Bob. Um... So even though I teach at the University of Toronto, I, I'm basically an American by birth and, and life experience. Like born in Ohio, it was during the at the end of World War II, my father was stationed there. But I grew up around Boston. I uh, grew up as a kind of uh, conventional Catholic, fairly dedicated to that. Went to Holy Cross, uh, where I studied philosophy and theology. Uh, I teach in the political science department, but I had no social science training at all. Um, then I went off to graduate school in religious studies, and uh, and that was the time of ecumenism was very big. So, so I had gone to a Holy Cross because they said, uh, you know, go to a Catholic school or you'll lose your faith. And then the Holy Cross theology people said you should go to Yale to study religion. And I went to Yale in, in a PhD program in religious studies and went through three years, got through my PhD exams, and decided that I didn't believe in God anymore. So. <laughs> we're right about that anyway uh, so then I was casting about for a different field to enter and what I did retain from my work in theology and philosophy was uh, a kind of concern for moral issues and uh, and somehow I the truth is I wandered into the political science department and the director of graduate studies there was a political theorist named Joe Hamburger and uh, they had a rule at Yale you could transfer from one department to another without going through the normal admission process because I'd never had any political science. And he said, we don't have any money. I said, I have a fellowship. I had a Kent fellowship for the Danforth Foundation. And he said, you're in. So that's how <laughs> I became a political scientist. Uh, and uh, so then I wrote a dissertation, which was about uh, kind of an egalitarian market uh, socialism. Uh, and uh, having finished that, I was casting about for a new project. I'd been invited to uh, to go to a conference at the American Political Science Association, and the price of admission was to write a, a paper on citizenship, which I'd never thought about before. And it was the time of the first Haitian refugee crisis, where there were people coming out of Haiti trying to get into the United States, uh, and we were stopping them mid-sea, turning them away. I can't remember where there was that time when they were going to Guantanamo. Anyway, I, I thought this is an interesting puzzle. You know, on the one hand, I felt very sympathetic to the people trying to flee Haiti. There was obviously oppression, economic and political, that they were fleeing. But on the other hand, if the Haitians, why not everybody else in comparable circumstances? That seemed like uh, millions uh, and millions, hundreds of millions of people, potentially. And uh, what about people in the United States who were already disadvantaged? This was uh, in... Uh, the uh, about 1980 when we still thought Americans might do something about the disadvantaged. Uh, so so uh, so that's how I started, and I and I decided to think about that question for my little paper, and I said I'd go read the literature on immigration, figure this out, and then it turned out there wasn't any literature on immigration. 
So, so I turned to the leading philosophers of the day, which I thought of as Rawls first, and then Nozick and some utilitarians, to see what they would have to say about this topic. I really had no preconceptions. As I said, I was kind of torn between my sympathy for the Haitians and my concern about the implications for those already present. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in that process that I came to the conclusion, thinking about those theories and their implications and applying them to this question, that really, uh, if you were committed to liberal principles, you ought to be for open borders. So, uh, so that surprised me, actually. That finding surprised me. And for a while, I was unsure whether that was actually the correct position or whether that showed something about the problem with liberal theory as it had been constructed. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, that was really right. And uh, so I wrote that up. It took actually quite a while, but eventually got published. And probably if those who are listening to this, if they know any of my work at all, this is the piece that they'll know, this argument for open borders. So, right. so then I took, uh, I decided to continue working on this topic. And, uh, you know, now that's almost 30 years later, I finally put this together into a book, which uh, I explained why it took so long in the introduction of the book, but I won't bore your readers with that now. <laughs> well, why don't we um, uh, pick up with, with, with what you were, you, you were just mentioning about the open borders argument. And um, one of the things I really like about uh, your book, uh, The Ethics of Immigration, is um, uh, how often and how frequently um, you explicitly discuss methodological questions. Um, and so, um, and in fact, I should mention that uh, the book ends with an appendix about um, methodological issues. Um, so l- let me ask a- a- about this. The-, the book has 13 chapters and this appendix. Um, and the first 10 of those 13 chapters um, provide an analysis of the moral questions regarding immigration um, against the background assumption of what we might call, I guess, closed borders. That is, the book, um, at least the first 10 chapters, um, proceeds on the assumption that our common world, as we find it, uh, with states uh, and governments uh, and borders uh, that enclose them, um, that these bodies are morally entitled to um, a kind of discretionary control over who gets in and who stays and and what status they have. but then later in the book, particularly chapters 11 and 12, um, uh, you argue, as you were just mentioning, for open borders. Um, that is, you argue that um, states, in fact, shouldn't have this kind of uh, control or, or rather that there are certain um, uh, exercises uh, of that control that are morally unjustified. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, I guess, to begin um, – why proceed in that way? Why, 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 why proceed with uh, so many chapters that um, seem to um, have among the, the, the first premise um, a claim about uh, borders that by the you know, end of the book we know you reject? Right. So, so just to be clear, I, I say in the introduction that I reject it as well, so it's, right. it shouldn't come as a surprise. But, but so that, that's something I struggled with in one of the reasons it took me so long to write this book is I was struggling with that with that issue. Um, and there were a number of reasons why I decided to proceed in the way that I did. I mean, uh, one is that when you, when you start with the open borders argument, uh, if you then turn to other practical arguments, a lot of, a lot of uh, problems disappear. Take, take the, you know, the central debate in the United States today is about irregular migrants. But if you're committed to open borders, there are no irregular migrants. So, so the, here's a real problem that people have real disagreements about and are really concerned about. 
And if you start with open borders, you can't really think about it. You can't really address it. So that was troubling to me, uh, the way in which uh, a kind of ideal theory perspective can uh, make it impossible to gain purchase on some real issues and problems that we want to think about and that have moral dimensions to them. Uh, and secondly, uh, there's a there's a pragmatic uh, consideration that most people are not going to be persuaded by the open borders argument. If they read it, they might think, well, that's an interesting philosophical point, but you know, this has no bearing on our real world. But there are lots of real world questions. The irregular migrants is one. Uh, access to citizenship. There's there's a whole set of uh, what we should do about temporary workers. There are a whole set of real problems that raise real normative issues that people do want to engage with. And I, I explain in the book that, you know, the, the first article that I wrote was about open borders. But the second one, I got invited to a conference where there was a debate in Europe about who should have access to citizenship. And this was a, a real debate about because Europe had had immigrants and because they had a history of uh, of granting citizenship mainly through descent, uh, people were living there, you know, generation after generation, uh, without getting access to citizenship. So this became a, an issue. And in this case, uh, it seemed to me that was an issue that could be effectively addressed without any reference to open borders within the confines of the conventional assumption. That's how it emerged politically, but also normatively. So in that case. In the open borders argument, I have a strong disagreement with Michael Walzer, who's famous for his defense of the rights of states to exercise discretionary control. But with respect to this issue, uh, he and I were on the same page, which is to say I was following his page. You know, he had made an argument about if you're going to let people live in your society on an ongoing basis, you have to give them access to citizenship. And I thought that was exactly right. So part of what I was trying to do was to recognize that it's possible to have arguments within certain parameters where you you bracket certain questions. I mean, we all do that, right, in our writing. Right. We consider some questions and bracket others, and that it would be fruitful to take as one of those brackets the whole open borders argument and set it aside for a while and see what answers we would come up to about a range of practical and policy issues uh, under the conventional assumption that states have very considerable discretion, not absolute, but very considerable discretion with respect to immigration. And then re-examine the open borders thing and then re-examine the findings. The, the crucial question is, if you then think open borders is right, does that change all the other views? So that's the crucial question that makes this kind of problem. But fortunately for my purposes, and I argue this in the last chapter, all, almost all of the conclusions that I reach under the presupposition that it's okay to, to exercise discretionary control over borders are still valid even under the under a, an assumption that open borders is the correct way to go. It, some problems disappear, like the irregular migrants, but to the extent that the problems are still on the table, the original conclusions still still stand. So that that's why I went that way. Right. Well, that's interesting. Can can um, let me just follow up very quickly. Um, sure. On uh, something that 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 you just mentioned between sort of um, what you were calling ideal theory kinds of approaches to f political, moral, philosophical questions, and um, non-ideal uh, uh, approaches, um, and so um, some people, as you're aware, I'm sure, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware, you know, some people think that um, if you're starting with um, 
uh, premises that are far divorced from uh, the empirical facts as we find them. Um, the philosophy that follows uh, is of um, little value uh, or might even be fundamentally distorted in, in some deeper way. And then, you know, there are others who uh, uh, reject that. And so there's a whole debate between, you know, sure. uh, uh, how, how we ought to proceed. Now, one of the things I thought that was very, very nice about your book, uh, particularly in that last chapter and in the appendix, is the the way in which um, uh, you see the ideal and the non-ideal um, phases of your argument as having at least potentially uh, a complementary relation rather than one that's adversarial. Um, and you had just mentioned, uh, as, in, in, as you were just talking, uh, a little bit of that. Could you say a little bit more explicitly about uh, about the, uh, how the open borders uh, arguments might um, be friendly uh, or in a friendly non-adversarial relation with the, the more empirical, uh, non-ideal kinds of arguments that the, the book takes up? Right. So I, I think I'll just uh, offer a slight uh, correction, I think, or I would want to state it a little differently about the ideal, non-ideal. I am aware, of course, of these debates about ideal and non-ideal theory, and I deliberately avoided using those terms for the most part in my own analysis. Because right. it, it seems to me that what we really have are a spectrum. Every philosophical discussion will take place against the background of certain presuppositions. And the question is, well, what presupposition should we adopt? And, and why, and uh, what about alternative presuppositions? And so what's called non-ideal theory really takes some sets of presuppositions about the realities of the existing world, uh, and ideal theory takes others. But there's almost no, I mean, Descartes perhaps is an exception, but there's almost no ideal theory that isn't itself uh, filled with presuppositions. I mean, Rawls is very explicit about this, for example. Sure. That he's... He's got a set of fundamental commitments that shape his ideal theory uh, that don't, he doesn't seek to justify them at still a deeper level. The assumptions about persons and, and uh, the moral powers and those sorts of things are, are starting points, not things that he argues for in the book. And that's true of any enterprise. So part of what I try to say in the appendix is what we should do is try to be conscious of our presuppositions. There are good reasons for adopting different kinds of presuppositions. And we should try to avoid talking past one another. So in this case, uh, you know, I start with these. So I think of these early issues about who should have access to citizenship and what rights should temporary workers have and, and uh, things like that. And, and what about people, you know, what, what are the obligations of immigrants to adapt to the society they move into and how should the society adapt to them? These are all real questions that we can examine both against the background of uh, the conventional assumption about discretionary control over borders, and again against the background of open borders. So, so I think of them not as not simply as non-ideal problems. That is to say, they're not problems that are generated by injustices or inequalities. They're fundamental problems, moral problems to which there are appropriate moral solutions. So, again, in that context, I assume a commitment to democratic principles. Now, that could be challenged, right? A society that didn't accept democratic principles, you'd have to argue about why they should accept democratic principles before you could come to those answers. So, so the the general the general approach then is be, uh, try to articulate and be conscious of your presuppositions, 
you should maybe explain a little why you adopt presuppositions, but be open to other people adopting other presuppositions for different purposes at different times. And the book kind of demonstrates that by adopting one set of presuppositions for the first part of the book and a different set for the second. And other people could adopt different ones. And and by the way, there's a chapter on refugees that fits, doesn't fit neatly into either of those. It, it kind of explores something in between uh, open borders and uh, and the uh, the discretionary control. Right, right. So l let's pick up on um, the democratic principles um, sure. that are the again one of the 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 premises of of the book um, that runs through all the chapters, uh, first part and second part. Right, uh, is that um, you know w w this is a book written for uh, people who already accept. Um, Dem what, what you call democratic principles, right. and I take it that the form of the argument at every at every stage uh, is going to um, uh, be as follows: um, Given these commitments to what you call democratic principles, we should be driven to have certain thoughts that maybe aren't so um, uh, uh, common uh, about immigration or about this kind of immigrant. Um, so why don't we, um, can you tell us a little bit about what those principles are like, and then maybe tell us a little bit about how, um, in, in some of the earlier cases that you deal with in the book, uh, like the birthright cases, uh, or the naturalization kinds of cases, uh, how the democratic principles are supposed to push us in a particular direction, uh, in, in thinking about, um, immigration. Right. So, so, uh, uh a couple of things I want to say here. First of all is, um, I sort of I think your question nicely captures the uh, a, a, the typical uh, philosophical approach to these kinds of issues, and it's an approach that I'm consciously resisting in the book. Okay, which is to say, what's your set of principles? And and that's a natural instinct. Tell us tell us your set of principles, and then we'll see how they apply to the cases or the problems. And what I, what I try to do, and and you know I get that question all the time. What, what are your underlying principles? But what I'm trying to do is to let the principles emerge from particular problems and the answers that we have to particular problems. So here's the second point that I wanted to say. Not all of the book is a critique of uh, existing practices. Large chunks of the book are looking at what are established practices in democratic societies, which I think are defensible, and I try to articulate their underlying rationale. So there's movement. So the idea is to start with a, a question or a problem, like who should get access to citizenship, and ask, well, how do we do that now? Who gets it uh, in the way we give out citizenship now? And what do we think about the way uh, that people get it? Do we think that's a good way to do it or a bad way to do it, uh, fair or unfair? And and if so, why? So and in that sense, I want to begin with ordinary, common, real problems and ordinary common real discourse about those problems, leaving aside the kind of extreme politics, but to the extent that it reflects principled arguments, and then try to tease out the principles from grappling with those with those problems. So let's, uh, let me give you an example from that uh, sure. about birthright citizenship. So the striking thing, and it's one of the things people don't think about uh, much, that you know, there's a debate about uh, access to citizenship for uh, the children of immigrants. And in the United States, of course, and it's also true in Canada, anyone born in the country gets uh, citizenship automatically. And some people think that's a problem. In any event, it's unusual. 
in the rest of the world, there are only two or three other states in the world that have that, uh, have that practice of granting citizenship to anyone born on the territory. But almost every state in the world gives citizenship automatically at birth to the children of their own citizens who are living there. So I want to treat that as a puzzle rather than people just treat that as self-evident. Well, of course they say, of course they got, but, but, <laughs> but I want to say, well, okay, but why, what's the rationale of that? What is the, what are the presuppositions that, that make that the right way to do things? And I think as one uncovers that, so I have an argument about the only thing that makes sense of that. So I don't want to challenge it. I do think it's an appropriate way to hand out citizenship. Mm -hmm. Notice that you can't be thinking of citizens as agents. These are babies. So the question is, why do babies right. get citizenship? And, and uh, the answer to that has to do with recognizing uh, human beings from the outset of their birth as members of a community and expecting them to grow up in the community. And that's why they get citizenship. And once one sees that, then one can see that, well, if you've got settled immigrants who are, have been established in a society, when their children are born, really it's a very similar case. That the most compelling argument for why the children of citizens should get citizenship at birth applies just as much to the children of immigrants. So, so that's, the, that's an example of the way in which I proceed. I start with a problem, I, I examine a practice, which seems actually intuitively to make moral sense, but I try to say, well, what, what is the rationale behind that practice? Let's consider it. And then let's see what its implications are. So the unexpected implication in that case is that the same rationale applies to the children of immigrants as applies to the children of citizens. And, and by the way, it doesn't justify the American or Canadian practice of granting citizenship to absolutely everybody. So if you said, uh, is, would it be wrong in principle to limit citizenship at birth to the children of citizens and permanent residents, I'd say, no, that's not wrong in principle. I think there are other contextual reasons for, for not changing the American practice or the Canadian practice, but it's not wrong in principle. And so when European states have moved to integrate the children of immigrants, this is how they've done it. They've said, you get citizenship at birth if your parents have been settled there for a certain period of time. And I think that's a reasonable way. They haven't gone to the, you know, everybody to get citizenship at birth. So I think that's, so that, that's one example of kind of the way in which I think about the problem and how to think about the problems and how to connect principles and practice. Start with practice. Well, great. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So let me just ask, because um, it does seem a central um, feature of the argument, um, which is when you were just talking about, you know, what's the rationale for, um, uh, you know, giving babies um, citizenship uh, at birth. Um, and one of the, the ways that you, you, you run the argument as well, it can't be that they know a lot about the society, they haven't passed citizenship tests, right. they haven't done uh, any of the things that sometimes get uh, uh, trotted out when talking about um, the naturalization of adults who show up. Um, well, what is it? And uh, You just said um, in your uh, uh, a moment ago, and it comes up in the book, it's the expectation that this is the community that they're going to um, – grow up in, uh, that this is uh, roughly where they're going to stay, or this is um, uh, how, where they're going to be reared. Um, and this connects to, uh, I take it again, in, 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 in uh, playing out the, the methodology uh, where you begin with some cases and you try to uh, uh, pull it together into a principle, um, you've got a chapter early in the book called The Theory of Social Membership. Right. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that expectation point about uh, they are members of a community and the expectation is that they are going to live and grow up uh, within this uh, particular community? How does that figure into uh, the, uh, uh, the debates? Sure. So, so uh, just to situate it a little for the listeners, uh, in uh, chapter eight is this theory of social membership. Uh, that you mentioned, and, and again, the contrast. So it's chapter eight; it's not uh, it's not chapter one. And the reason for that is that right. the theory emerges from pulling together the answers that I have to a range of specific questions. One is about access to citizenship at birth. One's about naturalization. One's about uh, uh, what kinds of rights permanent residents should have, and irregular migrants, and temporary workers. And and in each of these cases, I'm making an argument that well. The longer people live in a society, the stronger their claims to membership. So that really, the claim to citizenship turns out to be derivative from a claim of social membership. And so again, the reason why the babies should get citizenship at birth is because we expect them to grow up in the society. And that's their kind of recognition of them as members of society is their legal status of citizenship. But the same then applies to uh, immigrants who settled in a society for a long period of time. At some point in time, from a democratic perspective, they ought to be able to participate in shaping the laws that govern them. And they are members of society and ought to have the legal status that comes with that social membership. And, and, uh, and, and again, so here's an example of where the practice matters. If you think about uh, permanent residence, and this is true not only in the United States and Canada, it's also true in Europe. Permanent residents enjoy almost all of the rights, legal rights, that citizens have, uh, except for the right to vote and except for security of uh, if you the guarantee that they can't keep you out, right? You can get deported or you might not be readmitted. Mm -hmm. Even those are reasonably secure for permanent residents. So here's the thing. The, the, uh, citizenship is not actually so special. What's special is membership, the recognition of of people being members. So there's a much bigger gap between the rights that citizens and permanent residents have on the one hand and say the rights that a tourist or some temporary visitor has on the other. They're membership rights that, that matter morally. And those are the practice. So again, I start from the practice and I say, well, how do we make sense of that? Well, we make sense of that if we think that the more fundamental moral principle is membership matters morally and that's what gives you entitlement to legal rights. If you start, and it kind of challenges, if you look at the literature on democracy, it's filled with talk about citizenship. And immigrants are invisible, which is all right for many purposes. Right. But, but you can see here when you look at immigrants that, that really there's a way in which that language doesn't make any sense, that the membership is more fundamental. Right. So this is connected then to um, uh, one of the other arguments in the book. Um, uh, which is, again, that citizenship as a legal status is um, maybe red herring is too strong, but it's, uh, it's overrated or overplayed. And that really, again, membership is the important thing. And so you, you've got this idea of a democratic ethos of inclusion. Right. Um, which I take it is not about, you know, legal rights and other uh, sort of formal uh, 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 matters of status, but rather um, about social membership and participation in community. So could you tell us a little bit uh, about the role of, of that sure. idea? So uh, this is chapter four in the book. And, and 
just for simplicity in that chapter, I assume we're talking about immigrants who have citizenship status. But but you're right. It's not the whole point is to say even if people have full status as citizens, they might not really be accepted as full members. And so the the one way to think about that chapter is it's trying to address the issues that are often debated under under the rubric of multiculturalism. Although I don't use the term much in the chapter, just for tactical reasons. So here's the question: People come to a new society, and uh, to what extent should they be expected to adapt to the way things are? When in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, what does that mean? What, how are you supposed to change? What what is it you're supposed to do? And to what extent, if any, should the receiving society adapt to them? If it's a democratic society, and I try to work through a number of so the general argument is that if you're committed to uh, an ideal of democracy, you have to, and this is why I concentrate on the citizens, you can't have separate, uh, it's not enough to make uh, all citizens legally equal if you've got some who are in a subordinate uh, category because of their uh, interests or, or their identities. Uh, you, you have to find some way to include everybody, to give them the same economic opportunities, to give them the same sort of respect, that, that any conception, any rich conception of democratic citizenship is going to involve more than formal legal equality. So when the immigrants become citizens, what are they entitled to expect of the receiving society? And I try to argue that it, there's some ways in which it's reasonable to expect the immigrants to adapt. They have to send their kids to schools where they'll learn the local language. They can't expect to get an education in their own language. That'll be bad for the kids. That's one easy way. But other ways in which the receiving mm -hmm. society has to adapt to the immigrants. They may have claims that they may behave in ways that are unfamiliar, but you can't expect them to change everything. Uh, and you can't expect that for reasons that are deeply rooted in our own liberal democratic principles about the freedom of people to live their lives in the ways that they choose to live as long as they're not violating any laws or harming others. And even with respect to laws, you right. have to think about whether the rules that you've adopted are fair to the immigrants. Maybe these rules were adopted without immigrants in view, but they have negative impact on the immigrants that they don't have on citizens who aren't immigrants. And then, so you have to think about whether those right. negative impacts are justifiable. In easy cases, the uniform rules, and then somebody comes along and dresses differently and dresses that way for reasons of conscience. Well, maybe you have to change the rules about uniforms unless there's some compelling reason. You can't just say, well, that's the way we do things around here. Too bad for you because we're committed to the idea of freedom of religion and that we ought to respect conscience where possible. So that's just one example. There are lots of detailed right. examples, I think, in the, in the chapter. A lot depends on the specifics of the examples. Right, right, right. Um, so let me then move to just sort of ask about um, two of the, um, the 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 I don't want to say that they're 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 more difficult cases, but they certainly are more present kinds of cases in popular discussions about immigration. Um, and one you've already mentioned, and, and you've used your 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 own um, sort of term of art uh, for describing this character, this this class of immigrant, the irregular right. immigrant, um, 
and uh, the other is the refugee who you've also yeah. mentioned. Um, and I take it that a lot of controversy um, uh, in, in our popular discourse uh, about um, immigration um, is focused uh, on on one uh, or the other, in many cases, I guess, both uh, uh, category uh, of, of this particular uh, kind of immigrant. Um, can you tell us uh, about your your views about, uh, about these two kinds sure. of cases? And, and I'll focus on the irregular migrants, which is, of course, the most contested one in the United States today. And most of most sure. irregular migrants, at least in the United States, uh, don't claim to be and are not uh, refugees. So I'll come back to the refugees at the end. But, um, so, so here's the puzzle. I use the term irregular migrants for what the you know popular discourse calls illegal immigrants, and those who are more sympathetic called the undocumented. But it's not just that right. they don't. So I'm more sympathetic to the to this second. But it's not just that these people don't have left their papers at home, it's that the state is not giving them papers. They're undocumented because the state didn't authorize them to come in and settle. It may have permitted them to come in. Lots of these people overstay visas, but it didn't say you can settle down here and live here and work here and so on. Uh, so they're, they're, they're settling, they're establishing lives without the authorization of the state. But uh, my argument is, first of all, there are two parts to that argument. First of all, that doesn't mean they don't have any rights, even if let's accept. Right. And again, against the background that the state gets to do this, there's nothing wrong with the state trying to control immigration. That's the presupposition. And again, that, this disappears in the open borders argument. But here, that, that's one of the reasons for keeping that in view. So, so, uh, so the, the idea is the state gets to deport them if it finds them. But in the meantime, uh, they're still entitled not to be assaulted. Not to be, uh, not to have their property stolen, not to be killed, and everybody recognizes this. These are basic human rights, and the state has a responsibility to protect the the, the basic rights of irregular migrants as much as anybody else. Uh, the problem, of course, is the irregular migrants are terrified of coming to the uh, into the view of authorities because then they'll get deported, so they won't uh, take advantage of these, and so the state promises these basic rights, but it doesn't really deliver on them. And I argue there's a solution to this. You build a firewall between the protection of basic human rights and enforcement of immigration laws. And you say, uh, people get to go to the police if, they're, uh, if, they, if some crime has been committed against them and report the crime, and they'll receive appropriate protection, and they don't have to worry that that information about their, information about their legal status will be passed on to the police. In some ways, this is what I'm arguing for is the exact opposite of uh, what is the practice in places like Arizona and elsewhere, where there's this whole attempt to right. link everything together, to link immigration to other you know, traffic stops or other kinds of practices. I'm saying there ought to be a divorce, particularly around the protection of basic human rights, that, that the irregular migrants are entitled to basic human rights, uh, and those ought to be protected. Same thing with the, their children have to be able to go to school, and the school authorities be prohibited right. from telling the immigration authorities about these kids who's and their legal their immigration status. Otherwise, the kids won't go to school. So that's right. that's stage right. number one. And then stage number two is after they've been there for a while, uh, then I think they ought to be granted legal status. So this is what the current debate is about. 
they've settled in. They did it without authorization. We're not disputing the right of the state to have prevented them from coming or to kick them out if it finds them early on. But after a while, the fact that they came without authorization just doesn't matter anymore. Time matters. And the longer you stay, the stronger you claim to be a, a member, even if you came without permission. So that's clearly the case if you came with permission, but it's even the case if you came without permission. And I give some examples in the book that I think are compelling stories where everyone, at some point, everyone recognizes this. A lot of the dispute is about how long people have to stay, uh, things like that. So, right. you know, I'm basically for this general picture that there ought to be, uh, you know, some legalization of people who have been settled for some extended period of time, for several years. They just ought to gain legal status. Right. And I guess it would be hard, uh, although I, I suppose there are people to be found uh, who would take this view, but I'd like to think it would be hard to find them, uh, people who would say that, um, you know, elderly people who have lived their entire lives, um, uh, who didn't have permission to come and settle here, who have paid taxes and worked and done everything, uh, but then get discovered in their 80s, uh, should be deported. I think it would be hard to find somebody who would stand up for that. Exactly. Kind of so I think that's the sort of case, if you give that kind of case, and there are real cases of that sort, I cite some in my book, nobody thinks right. that that, ought to, that person ought to be deported. Uh, and conversely, if you catch them six months after they've arrived, you know, if if, and if you're not for open borders, you think, of course, you can kick them out. So, so then, then the question becomes, well, how long do you have to stay before you get this right to stay? How long? But you can see that it's a debate really about the length of time that's appropriate because, as you just suggested, people recognize that after some period of time, um, how you got in and why you're there is irrelevant. And by the way, one of the right. points I make in the book is that we've got very, something very similar with respect to uh, criminal activities, which is statutes of limitations. And even though somebody actually right. committed a crime, if nobody's discovered it and they haven't been charged within, say, five years for most crimes, uh, then they're, they can't be charged anymore. And so that's, again, right. a recognition that time matters in terms of the moral claims of the community in relation to individuals. And it's a similar kind of argument here. Right. So what about what about the refugees? Oh, so so with respect to refugees, I'll just make one simple point. So refugees don't have a claim of membership. So these are outsiders trying to get in. And the interesting thing about refugees is that, it, that that's a problem that, again, emerges. Uh, it's, it's better to think at it about it, not in a context of open borders, because it's a problem precisely because you assume normal discretionary control over borders, but almost everybody who says that, not everybody, Kit Wilman has an argument, but almost everybody who says that says, oh, but refugees are an exception. Even though you have discretionary control over, over immigration, you have some obligation to admit refugees. And so then the question becomes, how extensive is that obligation? What's the nature of it? And so on. And the general point I try to make in that chapter is, in principle, we recognize that uh, people who are refugees have a right to a new home over an extended period, and we've set up a system which ostensibly grants them, protects them that right, set up the Geneva Convention on Refugees after World War II and changed in the middle 60s, so that anybody who arrives and claims refugee status has to have a hearing, and if they qualify, they have to be allowed to stay. And then the United States and all rich Canada, all the European states have set up mechanisms prevent such people from arriving. Carrier sanctions, visa requirements, 
So if you are a refugee and you tell somebody that, you won't be admitted. You won't be allowed to come and make the claim. <laughs> so there's a catch-22 quality to the way in which we treat refugees. On the one hand, we set up a system which is very generous, completely unconstrained. There's no numerical limitation or anything. And on the other hand, we've set up practices that are designed actually to exclude such people. And and some of the reasons for worries about people falsely claiming them aren't, aren't crazy. But I try to say there's a deep contradiction in our practices. I try to spell out how that could be resolved and what would make sense. And then I also say that I think, you know, what makes sense in principle has almost no chance of being adopted in practice because it's because most people don't really want uh, because it would impose burdens. It would it would conflict with our, right. our our interests. And I think there's conflict there that most people really don't want to come to terms with. Right, right. So let's move on then, um, because I, I, I do want to make sure that we've got um, uh, time to, to, to talk a bit about um, uh, the final uh, section of the book, um, which is the argument for open borders. Um, so uh, as you've already said, um, uh, the bulk of the book presumes um, uh, closed borders or discretionary control over immigration or a right to that kind of control. Um, ultimately, your uh, your view uh, is um, uh, that that kind of control is not morally justifiable, right. uh, and that um, we we've got we should be led by uh, you know commitments we already have to uh, an open borders view. Uh, and that when we have the open borders view, a lot of the uh, the the issues that you uh, discuss earlier in the book about immigration, uh, you know, well, some of them at least uh, uh, go away. Um, so why don't you uh, first of all tell us about uh, why you think uh, democratic principles uh, lead us to an open borders uh, conception? Okay, so there's an analogy that I use in uh, in the book, which I used in my original article, which I think captures the moral intuitions around this quite powerfully, and that is that citizenship status in modern Western societies is a lot like feudal privilege in the Middle Ages. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it privileges a few, and uh, it excludes the many. And uh, it's, it's, it's an unjustifiable system of protecting the interests of the few at the expense of the vast majority of people. So, so that refers to the basic structure of dividing the world into states, some of which are very rich, some of which m m most of the people live in states that are very poor, and they're precluded from changing their status through their own e energy and initiative by the rules that say you don't get to come in unless you're a citizen or we grant you permission. So underlying that is the notion of commitment to freedom and equality, that uh, we're committed to uh, human freedoms. And I try to make an argument that um, the freedom to move across state borders is a fundamental freedom for the same reason that freedom to move within state borders should be regarded as fundamental freedom. And also uh, equality. So equality of opportunity. If, if there are opportunities elsewhere, but you're not allowed to go uh, take advantage of them, they're not really opportunities for you. So if we're committed to equality of opportunity and more deeply committed to equal respect for persons, we ought to create background conditions in which uh, all people have uh, an equal chance at life, uh, in which their circumstances are not radically different, simply because of the uh, what happens to them at birth. So, so that's the general argument. There are a variety of moral principles that we're committed to as liberal Democrats that uh, ought to lead us to question 
the organization of the modern world. But, but I do want to say one thing about the, the nature of this kind of argument. So people will often object mm -hmm. to this argument, gee, if we open the borders, think what catastrophe would happen. And the problem with this kind of critique, it seems to me, is that the, the open borders argument is, is an argument about principle. It's not an argument. It's not a policy proposal because there's no chance of it being adopted. It's an, it's an attempt to reveal what I see as a very deeply entrenched injustice that is connected to other injustices having to do with the economic inequalities in the world. And I don't think there's no political uh, possibility of changing it. And I, I'm not even saying that if there were, it would be desirable just to open borders and not change anything else about the world. It's connected, in my view, to an argument about global justice and, and uh, international inequality. But I do think it gives us an angle of vision on that deeply entrenched injustice, because when it comes to global inequality, you can say, well, it's not our fault. They did this, whatever. This doesn't work. But when it comes to keeping people out, it clearly is our decision to keep people out. So our responsibility for keeping borders closed is undeniable. And so it has a particular, it, it, it makes us see the problem and our responsibility for the problem more clearly. But it doesn't mean that the solution to the problem is just leave everything else in place and open borders. The solution to the problem is some sort of fundamental transformation, which I don't think is likely to happen in the near future. But we can, but it doesn't matter. It's important. It's important, I think, to be critical about the way we've arranged things, even if we think there's no likelihood of changing them in the immediate future. We have to have some critical perspective on the way things are. So that's the summary of the argument. Right. More about this. So, uh, yeah, let, let me ask um, just a, maybe this is a, um, a, a kind of detail-y philosopher's question. Um, so is the, um, is the injustice in the, uh, that you see in the existing state system um, uh, due to the inequality that um, prevails in virtue of, you know, morally arbitrary features of birth where you were right. born? Um, or is it in the inability of the, the people who are born into uh, positions of uh, disadvantage? Is it their inability to change that if they want? Or is it just the inequality in the distribution of resources under the soil and things? Well, um, uh, it seems to me those are two different philosophical views. Well, I, I want to connect them, actually. So I, I do see okay. that they're different, and they can be argued for differently. But but the general presupposition here is that um, all human uh, institutions are socially created. That includes the organization of the world, the division of the world into states, and the powers that are given to states, and the position of individuals in relation to states. These are human constructions, and that ultimately... Such human constructions have to be justified to those who live under those human constructions. If they constrain what people can do, there has to be some sort of justification that, that starts from a premise of moral equality, that somehow explains why this way of organizing the world is fair to everyone who has to live under it. Not just why it's good for us, it's obvious why it's good for those of us who get to live in places like the United States and Canada, but why is it fair? to the millions and millions of people who find themselves in such different circumstances. So, so I want to cast the burden of proof on those who think that the existing order of things is justifiable. That's the most fundamental thing. Now, within that range, 
there can be some, I'm leaving open the question of how much inequality might be justifiable or, uh, you know, what kinds of or, uh, arrangements have to be made with respect to equality of opportunity. But, but I just don't think there's a plausible story to be told about why this way of organizing the world is uh, really fine for most human beings who have to live under it. You'd have to have some story that the, the only the story would have to be the only alternative is the Hobbesian war of all against all. And so you some, you know, the only alternative is a catastrophic worse. So that's possible. But my point is to bring into view that has to be the, the story. And I think it's just implausible to imagine that we couldn't rearrange things to make them better for most people. And the failure to do so has to be justified. Right. Now, what's the difference then between what you're advocating, which is open borders, uh, and um, what one might think is a more radical sort of proposal um, that just denies that there are, are uh, any use to the idea of, of uh, national borders at all? Um, how, what, you, you, on a couple occasions in the book, sort of make this distinction right. between a no-borders view and an open-borders right. view. Can you spell sure. that out so a little bit? One of the points that I make in the book, both in the first half and in the second half is that uh, unlike some cosmopolitans, I actually think membership matters morally. And uh, so I make that point in the, in the first half of the book around, you know, that people have, it's not just human rights, but it's specific membership rights that matter. But in the second half of the book, part of my point is uh, we don't have to imagine that uh, the alternative to the existing order of things is a world state in which there are no uh, significant distinctions of community and community membership. We can imagine, you know, that those are not the only two alternatives that ought to be on the table. There are lots of good reasons why we form human associations that matter to us morally and that we have responsibilities to those who belong to the communities in which we're involved that we don't have to those outside. I mean, I have responsibilities to my students that I don't have to every student in the world and responsibilities to my colleagues that I don't have to every uh, possible other university professor. And, and that can be true, and th that can be true at multiple levels. My point is that those sorts of communal commitments and specific responsibilities do not necessarily depend and do not require, in all cases, a capacity to exclude. So I'll give you another example that I use in the book. Uh, the city of Toronto is responsible for picking up garbage for people who live in Toronto. It has a number of programs for people who live in Toronto. And it doesn't have any responsibility for those who live outside Toronto. But it can't prevent people from moving into Toronto and, be, and taking up the responsibilities and paying the taxes and getting the benefits of living in that society. So that's the key, it seems to me, is that especially when we're talking about political communities, what's the justification for preventing people from joining from signing the social contract, from joining the community, taking up not only the rights, but also the responsibilities of membership. That's the challenge that I'm posing to those who, who uh, so it's a challenge to cosmopolitans in saying uh, membership does matter. There are specifics that matter, and it's a challenge to the kind of restrictionist to say, why do you get to exclude? Right, right. Well, Joe, you've been um, very generous with your time. Uh, and um, it's been great uh, to hear you talk about your book, The Ethics of Immigration. Um, 
We've got time for uh, one more question, I hope, uh, which is um, what's next? What are you working on uh, for your next project? Well, thanks, Bob. And, and again, thanks for this invitation. This has been fun. Uh, so I'm returning to this uh, question that I started uh, with when I first wrote my dissertation, which was this kind of uh, egalitarian market socialism. It was about how you could, if you were committed to equality uh, and freedom, uh, you could use moral incentives. You could, you could take the administrative advantages of the market and use moral incentives to get people to do the kind of work that uh, and distribute income equally. So this was a kind of uh, obscure thing, but then Jerry Cohen picked it up in his critique of Rawls. And uh, mm -hmm. so when I wrote it, I, it was actually, I wrote the thesis before I'd even encountered uh, Rawls. And uh, so I want to return, it seems to me that there are a lot of issues that are now on the table because of the work that Cohen has done in challenging and criticizing Rawls, and I'd like to revisit some of those issues. So that's where I'm um, turning my question, my attention to questions about justice and political economy once again. Well, that sounds very interesting, and hopefully, um, you know, when uh, when 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 that work uh, um, eventuates in a in a book length project, um, uh, maybe we'll have you back on New Books in Philosophy to tell well, us about it. It would be good if it doesn't take me 30 years to finish this next one. <laughs> well, uh, Joe, thanks a lot for, uh, uh, for, for, for talking to us today about the ethics of immigration. Thanks very much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Joseph Karens of the University of Toronto. We were talking about his new book, The Ethics of Immigration, recently published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.